This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Wow. Well, thank you so much for being here and uh, for this uh, screening of this wonderful film. Um, we got a chance to see this, and I don't know how many people here have ever seen this film on a big screen before. So quite a few of you have seen it before, and it's, it's impressive. You know, for me, uh, probably the first chance to see it on a, on a, on a screen this size and hear it um, through a great sound system, and it's really just a, a joyous film. And so uh, let me, first let me introduce myself. I'm Dave Novak. I, I'm the director of the Center for the Interdisciplinary Study of Music, which is co-organizing the Beatles Revolutions, and we want to thank you all for being here for the first of uh, five films in this series. Um, we're going to have... Uh, uh, a lot of uh, great guests and co- great conversations about the Beatles, and it's a very uh, uplifting um, film to start with. Um, the, uh, the, our guest tonight is, is Ivor Davis, uh, who uh, is the author of The Beatles and Me on Tour. He was there in the 1964 North American tour writing about uh, the, the, this you know, emerging phenomenon as it was happening. It was about a month of, of being on tour with them. Yeah, with about five years. weeks of... Yeah. Um, of- uh, of madcap stuff. <laughs> so, just, and this book is just full of stories about um, some of the things that were happening uh, back in the stage. And um, we're both, uh, we also have the connection of both having been born in Hackney. Yeah, well, well, I mean, what, a, what an incredible coincidence. I mean, Hackney is not quite the capital of England. <laughs> if any of you have been there, I mean, I would guess that probably if there's one person in this audience who's been there, please raise your hand. Nobody. Oh, it's a cool, it's oh, a cool a place. Come on now. <laughs> there we go. There you go. But, but the, I must tell you, um, uh, we have a young lady in the front who was one of the fans, the screaming fans. And I think I had to throw her out of one of the Beatles rooms. <laughs> anyway. Incredible. So it's, it's a small world. It is. It is. Well, it's, I just want to say a few things about the film um, and the... Uh, being able to see a film like this that is shot at the time in this, in this beautiful black and white and introduces all these uh, avant-garde shots. It was done for about 200,000 um, pounds, I, I think. Yes. And so not very much money even, uh, you know, in something. But, you know, uh, it's, it's a verite film with a lot of this uh, camera movement and in a lot of ways introducing a lot of the kinds of, of framings and movements of the camera that, that were then copied in music video uh, many years later. So it's in many ways a kind of oracular film. It, pre- it predicts some of the things that are going to happen with rock and roll, but it, it just wasn't happening yet at this time and, and at the beginning of this, at, of this uh, moment where you're just starting to see some of the things that are going to blow up. And so I wanted to start by asking you about the first time you'd seen the film. And, well, uh, yeah. before you say that, yes. the music video idea was basically the Beatles did it yeah. because they wanted uh, a vehicle, a platform, to promote their music. Mm-hmm. And so this was a, a, a music video that ran out of control. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you just saw yes. why it ran out of control. But I will say that when I see it again, it brings back memories because, because of course, there's exaggerations. But the press conferences are the same. And, I mean, insane questions. Yes. You know, you land in Toronto... And the, and the guys say to the Beatles, well, what do you think of Canadian women? They've been there three minutes. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and so ridiculous stuff and all the stuff about what do you call your haircut and how do you get to America? Right. All good lines. 
I must tell you the story how I saw A Hard Day's Night the first time. Mm. We were in Atlantic City. We were staying at uh, the Lafayette Inn. Halfway through the tour, the promoter who owned a lot of Atlantic City hotels wanted to give the Beatles a treat. And he said, I'm going to show you, I'm going to screen this film on the penthouse floor. Uh, I was invited, a few other people, those on the tour. So we get to the penthouse floor, 11 o'clock at night, and we sit down to watch the movie. And before the lights go off, the door opens, and the Beatles are sitting there with us. The door opens, and in walks nine or ten young women in various states of undress. I mean, they were scantily clad. How shall I say that? Mm. Uh, That way. (laughs) And the guy, the promoter said, Take your pick. Well, I jumped up. <laughs> he said, not you, sit down. <laughs> the, four, the Beatles got up and they, they, didn't, you know, they didn't know what to make of this. They finally twigged and they ended up, believe it or not, taking the hand of the lady of their choice and they left us to enjoy the movie. And then when we came back, yes, I, this is serious, when, they, when we came back, the Beatles were there with all the ladies watching the rest of the film. About 24 hours later, Brian Epstein hit the roof. I mean, this was unbelievable. But in those days, we didn't write about this little um, a hard day's night that the Beatles had. Um, we, because, you know, we didn't write about uh, the, the sort of the seamy things or the the, the ladies and that stuff like that, because we all knew as a, ro- a reporter that if, if we started writing the terrible truth, and there wasn't all that terrible truth, don't, don't let me give the impression that it was, it was great fun, it was enormously wonderful, but, but if we wrote some of the inside stories, um, you know, they would say, okay, you're on your way, no more ticket to ride, go home. <laughs> so that was my experience of seeing A Hard Day's Night with and without the Beatles. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, you know, there's, there's so many great stories in the book about being in this uh, press group. But one of the things that comes across clearly is that most of the people were not prepared for what was going to happen and that they didn't have the highest, necessarily the highest opinion of this music as a general phenomenon. Like it wasn't taken seriously. It wasn't respected. There were, you know, writers who were sort of, you know, I should be covering w- the war. I shouldn't be here uh, dealing with, with these Beatles. And the entertainment industry wasn't prepared for it. Well, not only that, I mean, for example, another guy that was on the trip with me with Art Schreiber, who was Westinghouse's number one political reporter for the Westinghouse chain of radio stations. And all of a sudden, one day, he was told, we need you to cover the Beatles, you know, and he came along kicking and puffing and saying, what the hell am I doing with these young ragamuffins? (laughs) But by the end of the tour, he was converted because they were so, um, just so charming. Um, I mean, it was a great opportunity to see them up close And why we got along so well with the Beatles then, as you saw in this movie, um, they were prisoners in the hotel with us, so we had to stick around. The only people they could hang out with and drink with and play Monopoly with was was us, the the, the guys on the road with them, the boys on the bus. So the Beatles never knew, never knew, David, never knew that they would be, uh, here we'd be in Santa Barbara, 
2019 watching the movie. I mean, they didn't have a clue. Uh, John, no. Paul said he was going to write music for other people. Ringo said, uh, uh, I'm going to open with the money I get, open a hairdressing salon. <laughs> yeah. Because his girlfriend was a, was a hairdresser, Maureen, and then she became his wife. But they never knew that the, the, uh, they thought it was going to be over five years at maximum. Mm. And look at this madness, incredible thing. And one other thing, I, I'm sorry. The other thing is the screaming was start to finish. As soon as you got into the stadium, I mean, I never heard the songs. I was sitting in the front row. Yeah. D, where D's sitting. D, by the way, is the, is the girl who also tried to hide in, a, in, 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 in the Beatles room and she, she got, sorry about that, embarrassing you beyond belief, but that's okay. Proud. She's proud. Okay. <laughs> so there, there you are. Um, so, you know, they were, they, were, they were just trapped and it was just a wonderful, wonderful journey. Yeah, I wanted to read a, a little bit about these um, fans because in, in a way, one of the stars of the film and of the whole Beatles culture are the fans, and especially these young uh, girls who were screaming uh, the entire time. And, and th- there's, a, there's a quote in here from a, a, a cop who was hired to do security, and he says, uh, the Beatles began to play. Don't ask what they played, because no one except the Beatles can answer that question. No one heard one song, one lyric, not even one note. The cheers never stopped, the screams never died, and the tears from the eyes of young girls never stopped flowing. And then you say, and, and the jelly beans... Oh, it yes. was like being at a public stoning. Yeah. And, and, and so you have all of, these, um, all of these shoes flying in the air and all of these... Um, and all, all, and they didn't need to hire extras. They just let open the doors and let people in. And you can see one of the incredibly affecting things about the film is seeing the faces of these fans and seeing the emotions that they're going through. Yes. And, and um, I used to speak to the young ladies afterwards, uh, not necessarily Dee, and, 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 and they used to say... Why Paul and I are in love? How how do you know you're in love with Paul? Well, he he waves at me, you and seventeen thousand others. But that was the way it was, and you saw it in the film. And the jelly beans, by the way, I was in the front row, and I always say this. I mean, I wish I wore a helmet, yeah. and uh, because I still have scars from jelly beans on my left earlobe. I'll show you later. Huge, huge transatlantic um, uh, mistranslation. They said jelly babies, oh. which are soft. Well, that was the point. Yeah, jelly babies and jelly beans. Well, in America, they're like little machine gun pellets. <laughs> uh, you know, in England, they're soft and cuddly. <laughs> and so one of the things you can feel through this tour as it goes through the five weeks of the book is, is how the country is almost changing day to day as the Beatles progress in the, in the tour from the Ed Sullivan show um, all the way across uh, into California. And one of the things I wanted to ask you about was the context of the U.S. entertainment industry in 1964. What was comparable to the Beatles? What was, I know that they, you know, there were some things on the charts like Louis Armstrong was on the charts with Hello, Dolly. Yes. Things like that. What, what prepared the entertainment industry for this? Was there any kind of context for this? Well, you know, they didn't know what to expect. Um, They used to say, I mean, the Rolling Stones were there, and the Rolling Stones were a bit of a rough, tough guys, bunch of guys. And I remember somebody said something like, um, well, I like 
the Beatles or do you like the Rolling Stones? Ah. And they said, I think you probably know what I'm going to say. The Rolling Stones, if you invited them home for tea, they tear the house down. <laughs> but the Beatles, you would want to cuddle and take home to grandma and that kind of thing. So the Beatles image was so much softer. And that was really due to Brian Epstein, their manager, who who cleaned them up from the, from the, the red light district of Hamburg mm. and, and made them palatable to parents and grandparents. And, and, and by the way, the music, which is your expertise, I know, uh-huh. I think you might agree, David, that the first early music is, was lollipop music. Mm. I mean, listen, the songs, you know, I want to hold your hand and she loves me, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then... Later on, as you know, having studied them, that uh, George Martin comes along and George Martin turns them into the music that we know with all sorts of wonderful, lush variations to the songs. So when I was traveling with them, it was pretty, pretty basic stuff. Uh, then it, later on, it became the stuff that we love. Mm. Well, let's talk about the music for a second. And one of the things that interests me about the Beatles is how they were able to bring what had been associated with uh, black musicians, of black sounds, and some of the sounds that were not um, being circulated in, in, uh, on the radio and in, on television into that, uh, uh, that space in America. They were touring with the Righteous Brothers uh, when, they, when they came to the U.S., and I know that they were disturbed by some of the race politics in the U.S. at the period. Well, uh, two things. You mentioned the Righteous Brothers, and I must mention this, and then please, I'm, I'm inclined to deviate a bit to bring me back. Yes. Uh, beam me back, if you don't mind. Um, Pull you back in. The Righteous Brothers were the opening act for the Beatles, and so was Jackie DeShannon. Believe me, nobody cared a flying you-know-what for the opening act. <laughs> I mean, they wanted just the Beatles. So the poor Righteous Brothers suffered yeah. indignation, I mean, in New York City, I remember the Beatles came in in a helicopter in the middle of, to land in the stadium in the middle of the Righteous Brothers singing. I mean, come on. And so eventually the Righteous Brothers went to Brian Epstein and said, do us a favor, Brian, we're out of here. And they left. Uh, and so that was the situation. So what was the question originally? Sir? Oh, the, the, the question was about the race politics in oh, the yes. U.S. when the Beatles came in and whether anyone perceived it as, as um, in any relation to... I know that the Beatles certainly um, viewed it in relation to black music. All of their heroes were African-American. Oh, yeah. I All mean, of the music that they were you know, drawing from was African-American. And, uh, and they were this safe way to bring this music into the public sphere. Well, that, that's an interesting way, an interesting aspect. But that's indeed, they did it. Roll over Beethoven, mm-hmm. um, uh, um, Long Tall Sally uh, were, not, were not the Beatles songs, right. as you know. Um, roll over Beethoven, Long Tall Sally. I mean, they loved that stuff. Uh, the Beatles loved Elvis, uh, and they loved, and that's where John weaned it. Mm-hmm. And um, Elvis loved the Beatles, and then he didn't love the Beatles. But that's another story. <laughs> yeah. And I know that um, Brian Epstein. You quote Brian Epstein in the book saying that he wanted to make the Beatles into the um, the male Shirelles or something like that. And so there were like all these ways in which these. Um, in which they were sort of mediating between like, uh, uh, the black music that wasn't on television. So I guess I was thinking, what about the encounter of these, um, of these English uh, musicians with the race politics in 64 in the U.S.? Well, um, there was, during the tour, uh, somebody came up and said to the Beatles, 
um, are you going to play if the audience is segregated? Now, I want to tell you that with all due respect to Paul and Ringo and George, they didn't really, they didn't have a, a conscience that way, a social conscience, but the one who did, of course, was John. And John was the leader of the pack. I mean, John wanted to go and see where John Kennedy had been shot in Dallas. And Brian thought, oh, no, 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 this is going to be negative publicity. Don't go, John. And they didn't want to play in, in segregated audiences. But to be honest with you, if you look at, you look at old footage, um, you will not see um, African-American audiences, uh, spectators, very, very few. So the idea of, of barring uh, them, uh, all I can tell you is that John Lennon sat with me on a plane as we were on the, we had a private jet. We went all over the place with the private jet. And one day he was looking at a paper and he was outraged by a picture of cops with gigantic Alsatian police dogs attacking blacks in Birmingham, Alabama. And he said, look at this. This is disgusting. So John had the conscience. And as you know, when he lived in New York, he battled the Vietnam War and he battled for five years, five years to stay in the country, and he won eventually. They didn't deport him. Nixon and his attorney general wanted to get rid of John. John fought about it for five years and stayed. So John was, was the Beatles' conscience. And let's talk about George uh, a little bit as well. You, uh, you ended up having to write a column for him. That, you know, they were just trying to figure out how to um, market and sell uh, these musicians to the world, and one of the things they wanted to do was have them write little pieces, and you ended up writing George's for him, didn't you? Yeah, well, one of the reasons, that I, I should say that what happened was I was West Coast correspondent for a big London newspaper called The Express, mm -hmm. and my editor called me up, I was in LA, he said, get on the plane, the boys are arriving in San Francisco, you're on the ride, and I, we want you to write George's column. Well, George, you know, that was one way that Brian Epstein thought he'd get the message around. So George, of course, to be honest, back then was not the most sweetest guy of the Beatles. I mean, he was a little bit on the sullen side, believe it or not. I mean, he's, he emerged as a great musician and writer in his own right uh, with the Beatles and then after the Beatles. So George was supposed to sit down with me every two or three days and tell me his thoughts, but he was asleep because they went to bed at three and they woke up at three. My deadline was at 12. So... I made the first few columns up. And then George got me in the plane and said to London, he said, I just saw the Daily Express and my column is a bunch of old shit. <laughs> he was right. It was. It wasn't very good because, you know, I, I didn't want to go overboard, so I wrote Bland Pap. Mm -hmm. If you ever read Bland Pap, you, you can you know what I mean. And so I said, George, do me a favor, wake up, tell me what's going on in your mind. And he did, and, it, and the columns improved. So our, our relationship improved. Uh -huh. And so they, they had some things in mind when they came to the U.S. One of them was to, to meet uh, some of their favorite stars and Elvis. And you talk about how they ended up at Elvis's house. Well, what happened was that John always wanted to meet Elvis. And I'll give you the short version because I know... People probably have questions. And ah. it, the first year, they were not able to meet Elvis. Elvis was off making uh, film number 32. 
which was like number 31 and number 30 with a different leading lady, a different song, maybe a slightly different story. They wanted to meet Elvis. Elvis wanted to meet them. But Elvis was jealous of the Beatles because, number one, they made a movie called um, A Hard Day's Night. <laughs> yes, I nearly forgot that name. They made that movie and what happened? It was a huge success. Elvis was jealous. All his movies were uh, bland, not too successful. It made money. Sure, it made money. And Elvis was in a slave contract to make 34 films, five <laughs> films a year. So finally they got together, the Beatles and Elvis, in 1965. I was lucky enough to go along. It took a long time, a long time for the Beatles and Elvis to kind of meld. They finally melded in Elvis's house. They jammed. They said they would see each other again. They never did. Mm -hmm. And then a few years later, Elvis badmouthed the Beatles to Richard Nixon. Do you remember that picture of when Elvis, with his cloak, went to the White House? He said to Richard Nixon, he was trying to get, I don't know what he was trying to get, he said, first of all, Elvis said, I'll get you the votes. I'm not too sure Elvis could, mind you. But. And then he said, those Beatles, they take the money from America, they go back to England and they badmouth America. Not true. And so the Beatles were very upset at that and they never, ever met again. Wow. And so on this tour, the, the film hadn't, wasn't released yet. It was the Ed Sullivan show. And was there any other kind of uh, television mediation that was happening around the Beatles? Um, no, the, 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 the chronology was they went over and Brian Epstein, as, as you may know, decided he wanted to get them on the Ed Sullivan show in February of 1964 because it would give an exposure. And if it was a good exposure, then he would come over with the tour because Brian was terrified and he was terrified. He was worried that what would happen to the Beatles. I mean, every English star that came over, Tommy Steele and a few others like that, uh, never did well. They flopped and Brian wanted to make sure there would not be a flop. He took them to New York, they did the Ed Sullivan show, 74 million people saw it and loved it. And Brian said, let's go. And they went and they rode the Ed Sullivan wave and they rode the Ed Sullivan wave to all those incredible, incredible uh, concerts, 35 mm. concerts in, in about 26 days, mm. all like you saw, screaming from start to finish, I mean, I still never knew the lyrics of half the songs. <laughs> Couldn't hear. Incredible. And, and were they already getting completely sick of it from the, from the very beginning? Or? Well, they weren't too sick of it. But the, the, the point is that after one year, two years, second tour, 1965, they said, 66, the end. John said to me, I am fed up being a circus freak. He said, people come not not mm to hear us, they come to see us. And the sound system, by the way, was appalling. I mean, you know, sophisticated now, but then, oh my God, it was kind of Mickey Mouse speakers. Yeah. Like I'll bring one there and put one there and that's it. But it didn't matter because they screamed. Mm -hmm. and, they, and they really didn't know how to handle all those people, did they? And, and uh... um, the, cops, the cops were out in full force, but how do you handle, and you asked Dee this question, uh, a tenacious, fierce, 
wild stallion of a young woman, 14 and 15, 30, 30 of these young ladies come at you, what do you do? You, you don't handle it. Uh, they don't get training for that. They didn't get training for that. And so it was, it was insane. I saw, I saw you know, riots and, 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 and police not able to handle uh, the girls who all thought that the Beatles were in love with them, as I said. Yeah, well, I, I read an interesting thing, or I think I might have seen this in a, in a documentary, where one of the critics was discussing the, um, the fandom of all these young girls. And there was, he was saying that in the 60s, there was all this uh, juvenile delinquent culture around the boys, and there was this beginning of counterculture in the, in the United States. Yeah. And that for the girls, and especially in England as well, um, there wasn't uh, any kind of, of, of public space taking. And so there was, in a way, it wasn't just um, hormonal hysteria, as it's often said. To be, it was a way, at the beginning of, of, of a youth culture politics that was going to take shape over the next few years. Yeah, I, I think there's a certain, certain truth to that. It's, you know, there, were, there were many uh, analysts and shrinks that, that came along and, and said, you know, the kind of thing, you know, the hormonal thing. And, yeah. and, 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 but the point was, they, you know, the, the girls were, it was like uh, you, you press the hysteric button mm. and, and they began to scream. Mm. And, um, uh, and they didn't, didn't care about listening to the music. So you can, you, can, you can come up with half a dozen explanations. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So I think we're, um, we have a lot of people here who are probably interested in talking uh, to Ivor about this, and so maybe we'll turn to taking questions at this point. Why wasn't Brian Epstein on the film? Well, Brian Epstein was in the film, but you didn't see him. There was a scene in the lobby uh, when they came to the press conference where if you really knew what you were looking for, you may have seen a flash of his face. So for those of you who want to stay, we'll show it again. <laughs> and also, by the way, to answer your question, um, Brian, Brian loved the Beatles. Brian, it was his life. And yet he never pushed himself forward. If, at press conference, I, I would see him standing on the side, right on the side, and, and kind of gnawing his fingernails because John had his hands in his pocket or they were kept lighting cigarettes. And Brian was very much for um, behavior, discipline, and, and, and also it didn't push himself. The boys were the stars. He was the man that drove the machine. So John is the political one. If you had to characterize each of them with one word, what would be the word for the others? Um, Paul McCartney, and I always use this old Irish expression, Paul McCartney is the schmoozer, <laughs> the grand schmoozer of all. And he's still schmoozing on 60 Minutes, if you saw the show recently. <laughs> so a schmoozer now, a schmoozer <laughs> then. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> George was kind of uncomfortable to start, but he grew with the Beatles. That's more than one word. Um, Ringo. Ringo. Well, he's a drummer. <laughs> Any drummers Boom. among you, you know what I mean. <laughs> um, and John was 
brilliant, a bit of a genius, and I always say this because it reminds... I once... I spent a lot of time interviewing Robin Williams, whose mind worked at, at the warp speed. I mean, Robin Williams, brilliant. John was a bit like that. John was fast, funny, and he loved to provoke. He loved to needle you if he could get away with this. That's how he got his kicks. What I wanted to ask was, what was your favorite memory from this, and what was your least favorite memory? Well, that's a good question, actually. My favorite memory was... This is a little bit raunchy, but I'm going to give it to you anyway. (laughs) So so just as we were leaving, after this incredible tour, I said to Ringo, Ringo, how is it? Is it okay? Did you have a good time? How would you sum up the tour? And he said, he said, my dick hurts. <laughs> I mean, I didn't make it up. I, to- I told you it was raunchy. <laughs> what was the other question? I'm sorry, the other half. <laughs> Your least favorite memory. Least, least favorite memory. Um, well, I'll tell you my least favorite memory was when, what, after every concert, we, we, we were, I was in the second limousine and the Beatles were in the first limousine. So to evade people like Dee and all the screaming, sorry Dee, <laughs> you're my whipping girl. <laughs> um, to, to avoid the fans, the Beatles got into a meat truck, an ambulance, a fire engine, and I was stuck in limousine number two and then one occasion they thought, I know this is hard to believe. <laughs> they thought I was a beetle. <laughs> and that my, the limousine began to shake. And if you've ever had 50 young women, they can make a limousine shake. And I was scared. I thought they were going to tip the limousine over. And I screamed, I'm not a beetle. <laughs> and they let me go. <laughs> the hijinks that we see in the movie that the beetles do, you know, they run down the fire escape or... They're escaping their managers. Is that how they really were, or was that staged for the movie? Well, some of it was staged, but I can tell you that um, that many is the time we arrived at a hotel, and if they didn't have a a, a bunch of police to help them through, because I want to tell you, wherever we went in the car, we had motorcycle escorts, I, know, I, I, I kind of, you know, I kind of understood what the Queen of England feels like. I mean, you really got motorcycle escorts, but there were a few times when um, we arrived at the hotel, the Beatles got away, I and another guy called George Harrison, believe it or not, who was not George Harrison, the Beatle, he was George Harrison, the columnist for the Liverpool Echo newspaper. He was on the trip. And somebody saw, and he was standing with me, somebody saw him, saw George Harrison, they jumped on him, his suitcase opened, and I think he lost all his underwear. <laughs> uh, I just want to add, as one of the str- screaming young women in Shea Stadium and <laughs> on the tour, um, that my thought is that it was a time 
when we listen to that music on records uh-huh. over and over and over again, we didn't need to go to the concert to hear the music. So why did you go? <laughs> we needed to go because it was a time when we could scream, when our voices could be heard. And this was the beginning of feminism, of our, our culture, our film culture, you know, where we could have a voice and see things, and, and they're adorable. <laughs> and they had so much joy. You can see it in that film. But, you know, it was, it was a movement. And so I think, you know, yeah, we couldn't hear the music, but so what? You know, we could emote as 13, 14, 15-year-olds, and that was important. It was the beginning of finding our voices. Well, that, that is the most magnificent alibi I've ever heard. <laughs> <laughs> and if Gloria Steinem walked into the room, we'd ask her. <laughs> but thank you. I, I, listen, I'm only kidding you. Based on that story you told about the screening of A Hard Day's Night that you went to, it sounds like it was a bit of a balancing act in terms of what you were writing about, what you were not writing about. Um, how much of like editorial freedom did you kind of have? But I guess just the editorial freedom question. Yeah. Well, you know, that's a good question. Because to be honest with you, uh, as I mentioned earlier, um, if we wrote... I, I mean, today... If something happened, like some of the things, like uh, there was a suggestion that John had been in his room at Las Vegas with an underage girl. Well, we didn't write about that because it was not substantiated. But in today's internet, where you sneeze in Santa Barbara and people say, bless you, in uh, Albuquerque. So uh, it's a whole different ballgame. And as I mentioned... Um, we were invited along as our newspaper, uh, and so I, I must confess that we didn't write the whole truth and nothing but the truth, the inside story. I mean, there were girls, I mean, Miss, I keep blaming Albuquerque, but let's try somewhere else, Miss uh, North Hollywood. So Miss North Hollywood would show up in the Beatles and have a picture taken, and if she was, you know, she wanted to hang out with the Beatles. And maybe she did and maybe she didn't because the boys were young. Uh, John was married, but, you know, uh, and they, you know, they had healthy libidos. And these, you know, any rock groupie people will tell you these things happen. But we didn't write about that. So the answer to your question is uh, we, we didn't do totally the whole truth and nothing but the truth. We were part, to some extent, of the machine and now, 50 years later, I can tell the truth. I'm assuming you saw Ron Howard's documentary, Eight Days a Week, on the Beatles' touring years from the early Beatlemania exhilaration through the burnout when they finally quit in 66. And I wondered if you could comment on how accurately it captures the Beatles on the road from your experience. Well, well yes. Uh, Ron Howard did, a, a, did a, a, an excellent job in capturing... Um, the Beatles on the road, and that was that was pretty oh, pretty good. If you remember, there was I mean nobody went into the 
the, the, the dodgy side or the seamy side at all. Um, the only, my only complaint, and this is a personal complaint, is I spent an hour and a half telling Ron Howard my stories and I ended up on the cutting room floor <laughs> with a credit at the end. But anyway, no. Uh, so the answer to your question was, um, it was, it, it was the documentary had the blessings of Apple and all the Beatle family and it was a, a pretty good reproduction of what took place then. So it was accurate. I, I'm, I'm just wondering, you know, as I remember, in England there was more respect for older generations, I think, than there was here. Did you see any influence of this youth culture in alienating older adults at the time? What was wrought from that experience? Well, well, don't forget, there was an element of, of what I would call bolshiness. Um, there was the upper crust, you know, the geezer that gets into the, into the carriage with them, who's obviously uh, of the upper class variety. And the Beatles were very much pomposity prickers. I mean, they liked to needle uh, the upper classes because they were working class, basically. And so you got a little bit of that. Um, and, um, and to be honest with you, in 1964, people who were 57 and a half were considered old then. So, I mean, so the character, the grandfather character, um, they wanted him in the film because he, he was a, a star of a sitcom. I forget the name of it, English sitcom. And so they threw it all in and probably decided maybe this film will go down well on senior citizens' house in, in, in homes, but of course, I'm, I'm, I'm kidding, of course <laughs> they didn't. Uh, but but they, they tried to hit every element of the thing, and, and it worked quite amusingly, don't you think so, David? He's a clean old man. Clean old man. <laughs> yeah. We hope you will have as much devotion to the Beatles Revolutions series here as you do uh, to the Beatles themselves. We're going to be back on the 24th with Let It Be, um, so we're kind of bookending from the light and airy to the dark and deep uh, end of the Beatles. And so we hope you're back for that. Uh, Ivor has some books out in the front, and oh, you know, yeah, it's, so. a, it's a great read, and we hope that you can uh, and pick it up, and uh, he'll be out there signing it in just a bit. So thank you so much for coming, thank and we'll you. see you again. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.